Okay, so this isn't a sermon. This is a workshop. You didn't know you were showing up to a workshop, but it is. Thank you for your grace and patience. This is probably one of the last Sundays that it's going to be this dark in here because all of our lighting is being changed at this current moment. And so by next Sunday, when it comes to sermon time, we believe, hopefully in the next week or two, that it'll be nice and bright so you can take notes and you can read your paper Bible and you can see it. So we're excited about that. Okay, so here we are. We're in a workshop, and I want you to get your heart ready because you're not just going to listen. You're going to do stuff. Everyone from the person side you and say, I love doing stuff. I love doing stuff. So together we have been working through several questions to develop a deeper trust in Scripture. We've started with what is the Bible, then what is the Bible about, who is the hero of the Bible, last week how does the Bible help us live like Jesus, and today we want to both answer and we also want to practice what the Bible should do. Everyone say should do. What the Bible should do in our hearts and lives. That's what we want to look at. What should it do in our hearts and in our lives. And some of us, here's what is incredible, is some of us are so focused on doing what Jesus did. And that is a good and that is a noble pursuit. Like being generous with our time, our talent, our finances, seeking to pray for those who are sick. Doing what Jesus did, seeing people who are in some form of captivity or bondage set free, doing what Jesus did, that is wonderful. Yet in the North American church, we have an overemphasis on doing what Jesus did, and we have an under-focus under on being like Jesus in the world. In other words, it is from the inside of who Jesus was with the Father that he ministered in the world in which he lived. When everything pressed and was stressed around him, he walks in, pre, in, in peace. It is not an external doing, but it is flowing from a being place. And from some of you today are going like, ah, being? Eee, that sounds like a bit like meditation or Eastern religion type of thing. I want to let you know that that we celebrate being Christianity came from the Middle East. <laughs> Not the West. Just a reminder. Okay, let me walk you through. Here's, here's where our workshop begins. Let's walk through a set of one level deeper questions. Here we go. Here's the question. You don't have to shout it out loud, but I want you to reflect on it. I want you to be honest with yourself. Just on the inside, be honest. Um, what forms your belief in God? Is it scripture? Is it others' opinions? Or is it your experiences? What most forms your belief in God? Is it scripture? Is it others' opinions? Or is it your experiences? How would you order those elements? For example, if you hear or read that God is healer and you experience healing, then is it the experience of healing that further defines and cements who God is? Or if God declares himself to be healer in scripture, then regardless of your experience, who God is is based on who God has declared himself to be. How do you define? How do you define your belief in God? How would you order those elements if your beliefs for some of you who may be going through, you're here or you're at home, you're going through a season of deconstruction in your faith. Deconstruction only happens because discipleship didn't. Deconstruction only happens where discipleship didn't. And I don't say that as a blame or as an accusation. I don't know one minister today that is not in a season of deep lament, seeing 
how deformed people really were who even grew up in church. I don't know if a past, that's not a statement of accusation this way, it is, a, it is a deep thing here. If your beliefs have changed, here's the question. If your beliefs are changing, and that could be about anything from what the Bible is, who God is, to sexuality, to finances. Insert any topic you want into this from the most benign to the most controversial today. I want you to reflect if your beliefs are changing. Did they change by reading scripture or did they change from pressure from somewhere else? I know lots of followers of Jesus who have changing beliefs. And for every one person you can point to in scripture who used the Bible in a way that they should not have. I can point to nine others who actually walked in it and faithful, they just weren't as loud. You can point to every one celebrity Christian who falls, and I'm telling you, I can point to 99 others ones who are really quiet and really faithful who are walking out their faith. They don't maybe have the platform, but they are actually in God's presence, allowing him to shape who they are If your beliefs are changing, at least be honest about what they are changing. You can read through history and you can see men and women who could see, for example, the sin and the horror of slavery. And they could see that it had its roots within the church. And you can see men and women who are both black and who are white who begin to read this book. And they begin to read the Bible and it begins to read them and they begin to have a deep, profound conviction to confront the culture, even the Christian culture of their day, that this is not only sinful, this is a stench in the nostrils of God. And they begin to read the scriptures and it illuminates a conviction when they look at the world. So when you look at people and when you look at the world, are your beliefs changing because the pressure of a culture that you live in, or are they changing from a conviction that you are reading in scripture and how God sees people? These are important questions, really important questions, because the honesty of them are actually, we're just gauging the level of trust we have in God's word. How often, here's a great question I ask myself all the time, all the time. How often do you assess not only your opinions or beliefs, but what's the invitation behind that opinion or belief? In other words, if I believe that, if I go down that road, if I accept that to be true, where does that lead me? What's the invitation? So for example, unforgiveness is powerful, but with unforgiveness comes an invitation. The invitation is you be God over the situation, no longer trust God in the situation. You are judge, you are ultimate, you know everything, God doesn't, this will lead me into freedom, I don't believe this will. So it's not only I believe or I think or I have an opinion or they deserve to be forgiven. There's an invitation below that. How will this form and shape me? And what does this word say about that? And do I care to let it correct my heart? Deeper things, yes? Deeper questions, one level deeper questions. Howard and William Hendricks said this, that the ultimate goal of Bible study is not to do something with the Bible, but to allow the Bible to do something to you. This is what it is. You begin to read it, and here's what's amazing. It begins to read you. It begins to read you. And so today, let's read and trust Scripture. So I want you to do something. I want you to get yourself loose, a little bit loose, okay? Sometimes you can just put your hands in front of you, like open, like in a posture, like... I don't know why I just bent down to my knees, why I couldn't have just described that in words, but that's, I'm not the brightest bulb on the strand. 
you can adjust your posture, okay? So get your, make sure yourself you're comfortable. If you have your arms crossed or whatever, just uncross your arms for just for a second with me, okay? Just, just relax. I want you to picture yourself with Jesus. Some of you can do that with an image, and others you can do that just with words because um, you can't see pictures. You just picture it with words. I want you to picture yourself with Jesus. Where would you be? Would you be sitting right here? Would you be on, like on the beach? Would you be in nature? Would you be at your house in your most comfortable chair? I want you to picture that for a moment. And I want you right now just to say, Holy Spirit, come. Okay, he is here. He's here regardless of us saying that, but it's us inviting him into our hearts. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read one scripture passage and all I'm gonna ask you to do is I want you to invite and ask the Holy Spirit privately in your heart now. I want him to highlight one word from this or maybe one phrase from this next scripture for you. So you can feel free to close your eyes. This is not now teaching, this is workshop time. Philippians chapter four, verse six, I'm gonna read it. We're gonna ask the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna read it twice, I'm gonna read it slow. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to show you or to highlight a word or a phrase for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. One more time. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. You can open your eyes. Okay. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'd love to know. Just shout out, in this section here, just one person, just shout out one word maybe the Holy Spirit brought out to your mind. No? no. Known. Known. Supplication. Supplication. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. In everything. In everything. Love? love? Okay, gotcha. Anyone else here? Anxious. Anxious. Prayer. Prayer. Peace. Peace. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So how many of you know that we're in one room right now talking about one message? But there are multiple ways in which God is ministering. So like a map where there is buried treasure, when the Holy Spirit highlights a word, you put an X over that word, and that's a place where you need to do a little digging because there is something that God has for you in the various words that were highlighted to you. And as we read this verse or any verse in Scripture, here's what the Bible should do. The Bible should shape our heads and our hearts and our hands to be more like Jesus. This is what it should do. The Bible should shape our heads and our hearts and our hands to be more like Jesus. And so a question could be, how could reading or meditating or rooting in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, how could it shape my head, my heart, and my hands? Well, let's, again, let's workshop it. Let's do it together. A little bit of background. This is not hard. If you have a study Bible, you can engage this. If you, I personally use a Bible called the ES, the translation is ESV, and you can use a CSV. There's lots of different translations. Here's all you need to know when it comes to Bible translations, okay? There are word-for-word -word translations. Like, so again, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic is the original language of Scripture, not English. Okay. Well, I only read the King James. It's still not the original. 
Okay, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, original language of Scripture. There are word-for-word translations, the ESV, the CSV, the New King James, or the King James, word-for-word. And then there are paraphrase, like the New Living, the Message, even the Passion Translation. Have you ever heard someone talking and someone translating? Sometimes they're translating word-for-word, and other times we say things that have no context in another culture. So, for example, it's raining like cats and dogs. If you're in a culture, that would be like, uh, we don't say that. That, that, If I say that, people are going to go, eh, right? It makes no sense. So they would not translate it word for word. They would say it was like, it was downpouring. You're like, that's not what I said. That's exactly what I said. So sometimes the Bible is translated word for word. Other times it's translated thought for thought or a paraphrase, okay? So the book of Philippians that we just quoted from, just a moment ago, um, it was written by a guy named the Apostle Paul, a gentleman named the Apostle Paul, two Christians in a Roman colony called Philippi about 62 years after Jesus has risen from the dead. And the central theme of the book of Philippians is encouragement. So if you ever need encouragement, Philippians is your book. But here's the context that is incredible to know when you're reading the book of Philippians. Here's what's incredible to know. The central theme is encouragement, and the one writing it is in prison. (laughs) We read all of it. Okay, so now you're reading it by someone who's in prison, and now here they say, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Does it have different context now? He's in prison. He's in Roman house prison, but he's still in prison. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be known to God. Paul is writing this in prison, and he's meaning to encourage that no matter your circumstance, God cares, and he's listening, and he's engaged. Trusting Jesus or the word to use scripture means we allow the Bible to shape our minds. So here's four questions. What does Philippians 4 verse 6 teach me about God's nature and his character? What does it teach me about myself in relation to God? What does it teach me about my life in Christ? And lastly, what does it teach me about others and human behavior? So to answer these questions, I want to reread it one more time. And you can close your eyes. You can keep them open. It doesn't matter to me. But I'm going to read the verse before and the verse after the one we just read. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, those preceding verses I didn't read a moment ago. We just added there. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, don't be anxious about anything. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, including mine and yours. It says this, the peace of God, not your peace, God's peace given to you. It says this, it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It'll guard it. What does a guard do? A guard ensures... The one that should stay, should stay, and that those who are coming in are allowed to come in or not. How many of you need a little of that over your mind? (laughs) What needs to come in and what shouldn't be coming in? When you think about people, when you think about lots of things, how many of you know that we need this beautiful guard over our minds? Not where we're mindless, but that we let God redeem our mind. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, if we answer the questions... What does it teach me about God's nature and character? Here's what it teaches. Is anybody here struggling with anxiety? Can I see your hands, please? Okay, don't be ashamed about it. What at all? 
Here's what this scripture teaches. This is what God is speaking to you through his word. Do you know God cares about you? And he cares about what makes you anxious. So anything in your mind that says God doesn't care, God is indifferent, is a lie. It's a lie. And how do, do you, does your heart and mind, how does just this verse want to form and shape you? That the one thing as you live your life and experience anxiety is that when you do, God is never indifferent or uncaring about you or about what is creating anxiety in you. What does Philippians chapter four, verse six, teach me about myself in relation to God? It's okay not to be, it's okay sometimes not to be okay. And God's desire is to help me move from anxiety to peace. The world says it's okay not to be okay, and I think that's a good expression. It's okay not to be okay. But I think we have to add to it what God's word says, which is that God is actively working to move us from anxiety to peace. Both are really important. In following Jesus, you can, did you know you can pray about everything the word says? How many of you have ever had the thought in your head, I'm not going to pray about that. That's not important. I'm not going to worry God with that. You are never worrying God. You never have to manage God. I'm going to say it again. You never have to manage God. His heart, his feeling, Lord, I, don't, I know you're real busy today. He doesn't need you to manage his schedule. He is all sufficient, which means doesn't need us at all doing that. In everything, well, what should I pray about? Everything from the biggest in your life to the seemingly most insignificant in your life. God cares. I don't know what to pray. Do you have anything going on in your life? Yeah, pray about that. Talk to God about that. This is what God's word says. This is what it says. Pray about everything. It's an essential practice that you and I can grow, and it teaches me how anxiety is a human condition, but it has a divine direction and it has a solution. In other words, there is an antidote to anxiety, and it is God's peace. And how God is going to form it in your life is he's going to put his peace as a guard before your mind. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the thoughts aren't still going to come, but it is trusting that God, you are going to raise a guard in the midst of whatever it is that I'm going through. This is not abstract or benign or just out there. This is applicable. Let's select another passage of scripture as the Bible should shape our minds, but also our hearts or our affections. We allow the Bible to shape our affections. For this, let's read two passages of Matthew chapter 11 together. Are you okay? Okay. Um, Jesus speaks about King, in Matthew chapter 11, little context. Jesus speaks about how King Herod has unjustly thrown John the Baptist in prison. John the Baptist stands up for a, a marriage in his day, and as a result of it, he is thrown in prison. And as king, Herod uses his power. Everyone say power. As king, Herod uses his power, but not in a God-honoring fashion, nor in, a, in an honoring fashion towards John. And to this end, here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves here is, is what is Jesus saying here? Is this an invitation and this is how we as Christians are to act? Well, no, it's actually the exact opposite. Because in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks broadly about how our affections, everyone say our affections, by what we are passionate about and what we are passionate to see. What we believe most deeply within us is wrong in the world, is wrong in a city, is wrong in a nation, is wrong in a life, is wrong in a family, it is wrong in our lives. Our affections are the things that we care deeply and passionately about. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks broadly about how our affections, they can be shaped by God or they can be shaped by something else. And preceding the verse that we just read in verse 12, Jesus speaks about how we as humans are never satisfied. And he actually utters these words. He speaks of cities and of cultures and of people who will never repent regardless of what God does or who God sends. Their hearts, the Bible would say, are hardened. As the expression goes, the same source of sun that melts wax is the same source that hardens clay. The issue isn't the source, it's the substance upon which it shines. And this is what Jesus is saying. You can send prophet after prophet, person after perfect person. And here he is, the person, you know, fully God, fully human. Here's Jesus, and he has still experienced what prophets and law and everything. Because of the condition of sin, people's hearts are hardened. And finally, he concludes by casting a vision of a different way. Everyone say a different way. To use power than violence or force. Now, we just read, he said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent, they take it by force. And then he follows it up, if you read all of Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30, and this is Jesus' vision. This is what he is saying. Here's how I want to shape your heart and your affections. Here's what he says in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all you are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Please note, Herod is a king who has just used force violence against John the Baptist. Can I also remind you, Jesus is also a king, but he is not using force and violence. He is using something altogether different. He says, come to me, all you are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? You will find rest for your soul. And then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So you can live your whole life taking. Or, Jesus says, you can posture your heart to receive. And they are two different ways to live in the world. You can live your whole life taking what is yours. Or you can trust your Father and receive. And these are ways that will shape your affections. And Herod, Jesus is showing us, is an example of someone who has only known power to take what is theirs. And Nehemiah reminds you, Jesus is another king who has authority over all things. And he is living differently in the world. His affections have been shaped differently, and he invites us to live differently. What does this passage tell me to feel, to love, and to hate? Well, how does it shape our affections? Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 tells me to feel the tension between two kingdoms, two ways of living, to love God's gentleness in contrast to Herod's force. Here's the challenge. Here it is. You ready for it? In this exact moment, Herod's way 
feels like the better way because it's the proven way to get what you want, not what you need, not what makes us more like Jesus. Say, well, I'm not a king like Herod. I don't have power. Every one of us has small k king. We can choose to receive or we can choose to take. This is in relationships. This is everywhere. We can choose by force or we can choose a different way to be formed. To love God's gentleness in contrast to Herod's force. To hate the damage that violence does to lives and families and nations. And to rest and to take and to learn from Jesus as distinctly different from Herod. You know what I think is interesting? (laughs) I think what is so interesting is the singular invitation in this. Here's what Jesus says. You can take by force or you can take my yoke. But you're going to take somewhere. And this is the invitation. And it's why Jesus uses the language that is so different from the language of his day and our day in the language of Herod. Which one are you going to use? Anybody here have a situation that you want to see changed in your life? Can I see your hands, please? Before you is this temptation. Do you take into your own hands by force? You know what I've discovered in my life? I really don't like how God works. (laughs) I'm serious. People don't change quick enough for me. Anybody else? Okay. Let me take it one level deeper here. I don't change quick enough for me. And so I can take in that space. I can take all of the space. I tell you what, kids, you're going to change right now. Or I can take his yoke upon me. But either way, I'm going to take. Last. The scriptures present us with a distinct choice, again, of taking through force or taking his yoke, which means the Bible shapes our minds, it shapes our affections, but it also shows up in our behaviors. It allowed the Bible to shape my actions. We just read it. Come to me, all you who are labor, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here's a question that I want you to do some work on this week, okay? It's a workshop. How do you go to Jesus? Most, many of us can quote this, but we don't actually know how to go to Jesus ourselves. How do you do it? Not like, well, tell me how to do it. I don't know how you do it. I don't know. When you are tempted to take, how do you then go to Jesus? Do you know who does know? The Holy Spirit. For you. In all things. He knows how to lead you. He knows how to guide you. He knows what it is to tell you what to do. And I just made a joke of it a moment ago. I promise you, when the Holy Spirit says, this is what I want you to do, I promise you, it will be the opposite of what you want to do. Well, if I do that, 
If I do that, they're never going to change. Who does the changing, you or God? The answer is a little bit of both. That's what we think. No, God does. Only God does the transforming. Again, who's got someone in their life that, man, do they need to change? <laughs> Who here, when they looks at Canada, sees something that needs to change? Who wants to change political leaders? <laughs> Who wants to just change everything? Loved ones, the desire to change everything is because you are homesick for a home that is not here. Yet our call and our mission is inch by inch to let this earthly realm look a little more like a heavenly home. And to do that, we have to take his yoke upon us because the way that Jesus changes the world is quite different than the way that we want the world changed. Okay, let's finish here. Come to me, all you are labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest, <sighs> rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I promise you though, his yoke is easy and his burden is light, but you is still getting a yoke and a burden. <laughs> He's not walking out of there with nothing. You know what a yoke is, by the way? A yoke is what would go on to oxen in order to form them to walk in a way. So when Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is saying, get it on your shoulders and when you will, it's going to form you to walk in a way. It's going to lead you. In other words, when you want to go here, this yoke is going to go, no, 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 this way. Following Jesus means I get to do whatever I want to do. Really? That may be an opinion. I've never read that in here. Okay, let's really finish. I'm going to say an expression, and I want you to end it. You want you to finish it. You can type it in the chat. Practice makes perfect. Say it again. Practice makes perfect. It's not true. You know it not to be true. I have someone in my neighborhood. I grew up playing basketball. Not well, but I played it. I know what it is to be cut from a team. I know what it is to ride the bench on a team. And I know what it is to play in the game minimally. But I have someone in my neighborhood that this whole summer, I watched them, they played basketball every single day. Here's what I want to let you know. They're a terrible shot. <laughs> and they practiced the whole summer the wrong way to shoot a basketball. Practice doesn't make perfect. The right practice in the right way leads to the perfection of the intent, of the goal, of the design. Some of you, it isn't that you're practicing. The issue isn't you're practicing, is you are practicing from a deformed place again and again and again and again. 
And it is God that wants to correct that. And I don't know if you've ever had something that you do naturally corrected. It makes you quite crappy. Like if you were to go out and show this individual how to actually shoot a basketball, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know why? Because this is all muscle memory. This is learning something brand new. Last example. The Bible should shape my mind, my affections, and my actions to be more like Jesus. But this only happens when we are formed by Scripture, not when, not when we want to form Scripture to fit us. Okay? This here, I have my hand as a level. I'm not a carpenter or a handyman, but I know enough to know how to use this. That when building something, in order to see if it is true, it has these beautiful little bubbles where you can line it up. I use these to hang pictures. Lori uses her eye. <laughs> so I walk in and I'm like, and she looks at me and says, it's done. And I say, yes, dear. And every time I walk into that washroom, I, but it's done. But how many of you know how these things work? You put it on something. Now, I'm not strong enough to do it, but let's just say I was building a wall and I put this on. This is designed to show me what I built. And it's gonna show me if I built it well or if it needs some correction. And when I put this on, if it shows me that it's out of alignment, I have two choices. This is an illustration my father did a number of years ago and I've never forgot it and I hope you never do. You have two choices. You can fix the wall based upon the information that you've been given or, you know what you can do? You can bend the, le <laughs> you can bend the level and you can put it back on the wall and you can go, job well done. <laughs> okay, that's what you can do. This is not trying to be mean to you. When you spend all your hard time putting up the wall, if you didn't do it right and you bend the level, the only thing you've done is punted the problem down the road. And in punting the problem down the road, another thing that you've done is you've created actually a whole other set of problems. Here's all I'm saying. When God's word touches your heart, your mind, your mind, your heart, or your affections, you have the same choice. You can let it correct you or you can bend the level to suit you. And if you bend this enough to suit you, then you and I are not, we are not using the Bible the way it was intended. We are not allowing it to be living and active correcting us. We are not letting God be the author of it. We become the master of it. And loved ones, we live in a world today where people use this to bend it to do whatever they want. This is not the way of Jesus, nor is it the way of formation. Heavenly Father, where in our lives have we bent this? Where are we bending this? Speak to us. And Father, give us the courage to allow your word to be applied to our minds, to our affections, and to our actions. 
and where it affirms that we are building according to plan to God be the glory. Thank you, Holy Spirit. But where it also shows that we are deformed, that we are crooked, that, that, that we're out of alignment. Father, may we resist the temptation to bend this, to suit and please everyone else. And may we allow it to correct and to convict us so that we can be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.